0: This podcast is a presentation of uctv.tv, University of California Television. Like what you learn, help others discover uctv podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: We are here today particularly because we could import Dr. Patrick Catalano. <laughs> um, so as our as our keynote speaker. So Dr. Catalano is um, the former chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Case Western, and uh, he's a professor in the Reproductive Biology Center for, at the Metro Health Medical Center at Case. And um, when we were trying to figure out who could be our keynote, you know, we, we want to draw everyone's interest. And it was obvious he's a national or international voice, for decades on pregnancy health and effects on offspring. He has um, a, what I'm gonna call a continuous RO1, that looks like it's been renewed many times, trying, you know, on the the metabolism in pregnancy and effects on offspring. He also has current RO1s on hyperglycemia, on placental leptin. He is the PI of a Reproductive Health Training Grant. He's also won Teacher of the Year Awards. So we're just very fortunate and honored to have one of the world's authorities here with us to talk about the latest science and his amazing program of work. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for the introduction, very kind. Uh, I never heard anyone be imported from Cleveland before, but I guess that counts. And I appreciate the thought, but uh, I don't know if you had to say decades, but we'll get it. (laughs) Anyways, it's good to be back in San Francisco. I'm not sure that um, any of you know, but I spent a year here doing my uh, internship at UCSF down at San Francisco General. And in many ways, every time I come back, I feel like I never left. So it's a great place, and uh, it's good to be here. So what I'm going to try to do today is to kind of give you some overview about some of the things that we do and kind of where we think we're going based on what we've done in the past. And I spent most of my life starting uh, looking at issues relating to gestational diabetes. My training was in internal medicine in people who were endocrinologists, and they were very particular about doing things such as, this okay? Can you hear me all right? And... Um, so it me a lot of techniques, and in contrast to a lot of other things, a lot of my studies are really small. They have maybe 10, 20 people. So you can think of them as kind of studies you would do in a rat or a mouse model, but except they're done in humans. And I think it really does make a difference because all of the models have limitations. And I think that if you can take a look at the big picture to get down to the smaller picture, you can relate the issues related to mechanism as to outcomes. So just kind of keep that in mind. And I'm a clinician, I still see patients, and I'm not a uh, molecular biologist. What I do run is I run the clinical research unit of our CTSC, so I do things more physiological. But I've had the great opportunity over the years to work with people who do basic research, and maybe that's what translational is. It's not just what you do, it's who you work with and who you publish with, and it kind of gives you the broader picture. So that's enough about that. Let me get going and tell you what I think. Um, This data you know very well, but I think it's just good to look at it from at least what I was able to get the latest data from uh, CDC using the NHANES data. What's the prevalence of obesity by race and ethnicity? And you can see that if you have a BMI greater than 30, it affects about 32% of the population, whereas if you look at a BMI greater than 25, you're talking about 56% of the population. The hospital I work in is an inner-city safety net hospital, similar to San Francisco General, and our population primarily is African American and Hispanic, and then uh, some white. And so you can see that going through the numbers, we're probably dealing with two-thirds of our patients who are overweight or obese. So it's a real problem we see every day, not just in our diabetes clinics, but in our regular clinics. This is data from the HAPO study, uh, looking at the risk of who's gonna develop gestational diabetes. And what you can see here, and I think it shows up okay, is that if one accepts the IADPSG criteria for gestational diabetes, and the diagnosis of gestational diabetes is kind of uh, like the Tower of Babel. Depending on who you talk with, everyone has a different definition. But the bottom line is it's abnormal glucose tolerance in pregnancy. And depending on the criteria, you can have as many as 25% of people. And What I've kind of blocked off over here are the centers in the U.S. and uh, that give you some idea what the prevalence of gestational diabetes could be. So it's 25% uh, down in Bellflower and in Cleveland, essentially, in places like Chicago, who have a different ethnic mix. It's between in Providence between 15 and 17%. So again, if you're looking at Overweight people and obese who are reproductive age, we were talking about two-thirds of the population. And depending on if you like to look at the issue of gestational diabetes, you're probably talking easily 25% of the population, though there's a lot of overlap. And as it relates to offspring, this is a study that we did as part of the HAPO database, which I assume many of you know. It was 25,000 women, four centers in the U.S. and nine centers around the world that looked at an observational study looking at glucose tolerance in pregnancy in the third trimester. And the issue's been it's kind of, if you're old enough to remember the old Miller beer light commercials, tastes great, less filling. It's the same thing here. Is it obesity? Is it gestational diabetes? And at least when we looked at the data, not surprisingly, no one has a lock on uh, what the problem is. It's probably both. And this is what I'm going to go back and forth with. Uh, during this talk, is talking a little bit about glucose intolerance and obesity and how they both really relate to abnormal uh, fetal growth. And if you just take a look at this slide, uh, focus on the bottom part, looking at the mean difference in birth weight uh, plasma glucose. And if you take the references normal or underweight, and most of these are normal, not necessarily underweight, and women who have normal glucose tolerance, you can see that as the glucose tolerance gets intermediately abnormal and Then, frankly, gestational diabetes, what we're talking about is about an increase in birth weight of 164 grams. Go the opposite direction. What you can see is that if you take a normal weight woman and then increase uh, the weight, and then looking at the increase in the accrual in weight in the offspring, what you can see is that it's about the same. You increase it for overweight women by 124 grams and an obese woman by 174 grams. And then, obviously, as you combine the two, you can see the worst possible scenario was having abnormal glucose tolerance and being obese. So the bottom line to this slide is is that both glucose intolerance and um, obesity contribute to offspring increase in weight. This is looking at 25,000 women. Years ago, uh, one of my mentors was a man by the name of Ethan Sims. And Ethan Sims had done some of the original work on obesity studies. And when I was in a fellow, he said, uh, well, why are you just looking at weight? You really ought to take a look at uh, adiposity, because adiposity is a more important and more specific outcome. And he was right. And so since that time, through one means or another, we've uh, looked at adiposity as an outcome measure in our uh, kids. And the thing that's important to realize is that even though a lot of the studies use murine models, such as rats and mice, Keep in mind that at the time of birth, they only have 2 to 3 percent body fat, and most of the body fat accrues during lactation, more like the third trimester in the human. Even non human primates, uh, the studies of Kevin Grove up in Oregon, the Primate Center, and Peter Nathaniels, the baboon studies out of um, San Antonio, non human primates at the time of birth only have 2 to 3 percent, only 3 to 5 percent body fat. As humans, we have close to 12 to 18%, depending on how you like to measure the body composition. And again, compared to most other common mammalian species, this is far and away the uh, highest amount of body fat at birth. The other relatively common laboratory animal is a guinea pig, and a guinea pig has about 8% body fat. Interestingly, they have the same type of a hemochorio placenta as the human, which is different from other placentations, which I'm going to get to in a little bit. So, the bottom line is if you're going to look at growth, looking at adiposity may be a more specific outcome measure. And one of the simple things we've done is that we probably measured maybe 1,000 babies by now over the years through different methodologies. And what you can see is that when you just do a simple correlation of birth weight versus lean body mass, it explains about 90% of the variance. And that makes sense since uh, when you think about uh, lean body mass, if it's about 85% of birth weight, it explains 90% of the variance. That kind of fits. This is the interesting part. Whether you're talking about women who had gestational diabetes, so normal glucose tolerance, even though percent body fat or fat mass explains only about 15% of uh, weight on the average, it explains about 70% of the variance in birth weight. And I think that's the key is that when you take a look at a 7.5 to an 8 pound baby, once you adjust for gender and some other variables, a lot of that difference in weight is the amount of fat not necessarily the amount of lean body mass, though there were certainly exceptions. So one of the first studies we did, we published 10 years ago plus, we took a look at women who had gestational diabetes, about 200, and 200 women who had normal glucose tolerance, and we looked at their growth. And again, this is one of the primary outcome measures when people talk about management of diabetes in pregnancy. And if you just take a look at the first line, what you can see is that if all we did is looked at birth weight, and this was adjusted for gender and gestational age, we can say, you know, we do a great job in Cleveland. We can take care of women with gestational diabetes, and we can say that their birth weight is equivalent to what we see in a normal glucose tolerant group. But when you go down to the next steps and you start looking at growth with body composition, what you see is that, granted, there's no difference in lean body mass, but what we do see is that there's an increase in fat mass and percent fat in the woman who had GDM as compared to the control group. The next thing we did, uh, one of our fellows took the data in the normal glucose tolerant group and broke it down into those women who had a BMI of less than 25 versus a BMI greater than 25 pre-pregnancy, and I'm going to come back to that over and over again, the pre-pregnancy component. And what you can see is that if you look at this, uh, we know uh, historically epidemiological studies, what have you, is that birth weight in general is about 150 grams greater in infants of women who are overweight or obese as compared to normal weight. It didn't quite reach significance, it's like .06, but you can see the difference in weight is close to 150 grams. There was no significant difference in lean body mass, but what we do see is that the fat mass, the percent body fat, were significantly greater in those women who had a BMI greater than 25 before they got pregnant. And again, here at the bottom, what you'll see is that it wasn't related to gestational weight gain. Gestational weight gain in women who are overweight or obese was less than that, what we see in those women who are normal weight. It you can go through the CDC data, Uh, Chu et al. has published this data, Whether you look at an American population or a European population, taking a population as a whole, there's an inverse relationship between pre-pregnancy, BMI, and weight gain during pregnancy. Obviously, there's a lot of variability in between, but on a population perspective, that's what we see. So this is the same picture here, is that even though these women gained less weight, who had a BMI greater than 25, uh, you can see that their babies looked more like the infants of the woman who had gestational diabetes. The one key is that these women with gestational diabetes were treated. They were treated with diet, exercise, and insulin as needed. Whereas even in our place, and I assume many other places, if you have a BMI greater than 25, you may get a little bit of dietary counseling. But we really don't do too much beside that. We can get into the lifestyle interventions in pregnancies, and I'm sure other people will too. And while there are some benefits, it's, um, when you start looking at fetal outcomes, it gets to be a little bit more diffic- difficult to look at that as an outcome. So the bottom line is, is that even in those women who have normal glucose tolerance, very similar to what we saw in the HAPO data for 25,000 women in a relatively small subset using more sophisticated methods, we see the same thing. The infant of the woman who has glucose intolerance has a baby that's bigger because the baby's fatter. And if you uh, take away the uh, abnormal glucose tolerance component and just look at normal glucose tolerance, what you then see is that the baby of the woman who is overweight or obese is bigger because primarily it's fatter. And that has the long-term implications. So this is a little bit more of the HAPO data. Uh, This is looking at the primary outcomes. And, again, the glucose categories here on this side of the slide basically are looking at fasting one and two are glucoses. And the glucose categories are pretty much taking the 25,000 women and breaking them up into smaller groups. The point is, is that there's a linear correlation between the increase in glucose at the time of a glucose tolerance test between 24 and 28 weeks and the frequency of having an elevated Chord C peptide greater than the 90th percentile. One of the keys I'm going to keep on coming back to is that we spend a lot of time looking at glucose tolerance. But if you look at almost all of these slides, what you'll see is that the fasting glucose is the one that has the strongest correlation. And that's funny because the fasting glucose, generally speaking, is the lowest glucose you have during the day, even when you're pregnant. So it makes you think a little bit. And then finally, if you look at percent body fat greater than the 90th centile, again, it was relatively linear, and we didn't see an inflection point. And this is why there's so much of a discussion about how do we define gestational diabetes when you have a linear relationship between glucose and an outcome that you think is important, say the growth of the baby, where you make your uh, cut point is arbitrary. And once you make it arbitrary, it's open for any kind of discussion, and all discussion. So again, that's kind of the HAPO data. And this is another way of looking at it. If you look at between maternal glucose and percent body fat, and these are the different models that are adjusted for all kinds of things, uh, family history, pre-pregnancy, BMI, et cetera, the point I want to make is that if you take the lowest fasting plasma glucose and you model it, and what you can see is that as the glucose values go up in the fasting component, and these are in millimoles per liter, you can see that the odds ratio for developing a baby whose body fat is greater than the 90th percentile is almost sixfold greater when you're dealing with glucose values that most people don't consider consistent with diabetes, consistent with gestational diabetes, but certainly not diabetes. And the point is even those values that are lower that we consider quite normal compared to the lowest group, they're still two to three-fold higher. And the same thing if you adjust for more variables, you can attenuate the odds ratios, but still the principle is there. You're increasing the odds ratios two to threefold, even in what we would almost always consider normal glucose tolerance. And these were adjusted for things such as BMI, which are in here somewhere, BMI, BMI squared. So the statisticians had a great time with this. Okay, so more simplistically is taking a look at a bar graph, looking at the changes in BMI in the mothers who participated in the studies and those babies of those women who had a percent body fat greater than the 90th percentile. And what you can see, there's almost a linear increase until you really get to the point where you're talking about class 3 obesity. And at class 3 obesity, you seem to be leveling off about 20%. It's not 20% obesity. What you're seeing is 20% of these women who are class 3 obese have a baby who is greater than the 90th percentile in obesity. So really what you would start calling the super obese. So the question is, GDM and obesity are both associated with fetal overgrowth and associated with fetal adiposity. So what is it about maternal metabolism in pregnancy that's related to it? And this is what I want to spend a few more minutes talking about. This is kind of uh, uh, the comment that uh, was part of the introduction. Unfortunately, as we get older in years, I I should have met this up to 80. I don't know why I only went to 60. But notwithstanding, (laughs) because I I think I'm falling off the edge over here. Uh, But notwithstanding that, what you can see is that as we get older, primarily because of an increase in fat or percent fat, but the increase in percent fat is not necessarily that we're getting fatter, that there's more fat mass per se. A lot of it has to do with that we're decreasing our lean body mass. And we keep on talking about fat mass, fat mass, as if fat mass were the only thing, but you have to put it in relationship to lean body mass. I'll give you the example. I I didn't bring the slides, but I guess I was supposed to talk more than show slides. The component is if you take a look at Southeast Asians, in particular uh, babies of Indian women, Indian babies at the time of birth are relatively small. The mean birth weight is 2.5 kilos. But when you look at the percent body fat in those infant of Indian women, they have a higher percent body fat, not because they have more fat mass per se, but whether it's genetics related to diet, etc. What you see is that these babies have decreased lean body mass as well, so that the percent fat tends to be greater. And this is the work of Ranjan Yashnik, and he calls this the thin-fat Indian baby. So it's a very nice concept to look at. It's not just the fat mass, but it's the fat mass in relationship to your lean mass. Because as you get older, as you put on potentially more fat and maybe lose some lean body mass through just genetics, attrition, lack of exercise, etc. When it comes time to put that ectopic fat places, you don't have the storage capacity, and unfortunately it goes into your liver, into your muscle, and ends up causing a lot of metabolic dysfunction. So anyways, this is the key. This is what happens to most of us over time. And what happens is when a woman becomes pregnant, and I'll show you the slides, she has a significant change in her metabolism. In particular, she has about a 50 to 60% decrease in insulin sensitivity. And depending on where you draw the line, if she crosses an arbitrary line, we call it gestational diabetes. After she delivers, the insulin sensitivity goes away because it's mediated through the placenta. But what happens is is that you fall below this line that we arbitrarily say, here, we call it gestational diabetes. And here, what we're looking at is eventually... 10, 5, 15 years later, the development of glucose intolerance that because you're not pregnant, we happen to call it type 2 diabetes. The point is, is that I want to make is that it's where you start that makes the difference. Because if you start down here, that if your insulin resistance is lower or you have more insulin sensitivity earlier, yeah, you may change over time, but the point is, even when you become pregnant, yes, you have this big change, but if you come back down again, what you're doing is that you're always going to stay below the line, whether it's in pregnancy, we call it gestational diabetes, or later on in type 2 diabetes. The thing that changes the slope, and this will be the last slide, I'll show you, uh, not in this part of the talk, but at the end, is that what happens is that when people don't lose weight postpartum, this line, this line shifts, and it starts shifting up, and what you do is you change the slope of the line. And as you start changing the slope of that line, it increases your risk of metabolic dysfunction. So one of the real keys, I think, is this postpartum weight retention, which is a big problem, uh, and that's related to excessive gestational weight gain in pregnancy, which we can get into in a little bit. So that's the principle. Here's what the data looks like. These are changes uh, in—we published these 20 years ago now— looking at changes in insulin sensitivity in those women who had normal glucose tolerance and gestational diabetes. They didn't have diabetes before they got pregnant. They had normal glucose tolerance— they had a history of gestational diabetes in their last pregnancy, and so by the time you got to third trimester, they developed it again. So the principle is if you take women here who are otherwise matched for body composition and other factors, what you can see is that those women who, have, who go on to develop gestational diabetes but have normal glucose tolerance before they get pregnant, and these were done about three months before they get pregnant, was a very good group who were planning a pregnancy... Early pregnancy was defined as 12 to 14 weeks gestation and late pregnancy, 34 to 36 weeks gestation. The principle is is that what you look like in late pregnancy, metabolically related to insulin resistance, and these are euglycemic clamp studies adjusted for uh, hepatic glucose production using isotopes, etc., etc. But the point is, is that what you look like in late pregnancy metabolically is only a reflection of what you were before you got pregnant. The concept is that Unless there's something catastrophic that happens in pregnancy, starvation conditions, uh, force feeding, something weird like that, or a chronic medical disease, say an inflammatory bowel disease, we have poor absorption of nutrients, the changes that occur metabolically are very uniform, and they don't change much. Whether you're lean, whether you're obese, whether you have low insulin sensitivity or high insulin sensitivity, the point is that there's this 50 to 60% change in insulin sensitivity with advancing gestation. And if you think about it physiologically, we do a lot of other, not we, there are a lot of other physiological changes that occur in pregnancy, like cardiac output. Cardiac output increases 40 to 50%. Does it vary? Some women go 20%, some women go 80%. No, in general, it's 50 to 60%. Some things can vary. For example, if you have twins, you increase your cardiac output. Your plasma volume tends to increase in a relatively uniform manner. Your creatinine clearance Increases in a uniform manner. The point I'm trying to make is that the physiological changes in pregnancy are relatively uniform. No matter who you are, it just depends on who, where you begin that determines where you will end up. So it's one of the principles we've thought about and really kind of try to keep in mind as we go forward. Uh, so what's the story about uh, diabetes in big babies? And this is, as most of you may know, is called the jorgen Petterson hypothesis. Jorgen Pedersen was an endocrinologist who lived in Sweden in the 40s and 50s, and he wrote his thesis, his Ph.D. thesis, saying that the infants of diabetic mothers have bigger babies, and he alluded that they were bigger because they were fatter, because of increased plasma glucose on the maternal side, crosses the placenta in a dose-dependent manner, so fetal glucose in general is about 60% of maternal glucose, This stimulates fetal fetal beta cells as early as the second trimester in pregnancy. Talking 14, 16 weeks, you can see increased insulin in those uh, in the amniotic fluid. The increase in insulin then increases fat accretion. So that's kind of been the theory. But keep in mind, in 1953 in Sweden, taking care of women who had diabetes, what did these women look like? These were type 1 women with diabetes who were thin and had what really classically are type 1 diabetes. It's not what I see in my diabetes clinic. What I see in my diabetes clinic, I see 80 to 90% of women who have type 2 diabetes who are overweight or obese. So the principle holds true. The HAPO study proved it, but the point of fact is it isn't the whole story because this Patterson hypothesis was put together in 1953 when the only women who got pregnant with diabetes were type 1, they were thin, and it was... It's an important concept, but it's not the only concept. So what do we know about being fat in having changes in insulin sensitivity in pregnancy? And here's a slide that we kind of put together, and these are the changes, again, in insulin sensitivity with a clamp, saying that there's an inverse relationship. The higher the fat mass, the lower the insulin sensitivity, and this occurs during pregnancy. So uh, your obesity status really makes a difference, and the correlation is there. This is taking a normal group of people with normal glucose tolerance and breaking them down into their pre-pregnancy weight based on a normal BMI, overweight, and obese. And this particular study was based on fat mass, but the principle is the same. And what you can see, again, is the same principle holds true, is that if you're taking a woman who have normal glucose tolerance in pregnancy and look at their insulin sensitivity with a clamp, what you look like in late pregnancy is but a reflection of what you look like before you get pregnant. So, again, there's this uniform change in time. But when we talk about insulin sensitivity, we tend to think of glucose, glucose, glucose. But, again, insulin sensitivity affects all other nutrients. And while we have some data on amino acids I'm not going to present, what I'll do is I'll talk a little bit about lipids. Because we know that if you take a look at maternal triglycerides, you can see, again, in the same type of a study design, if you take a look at women who are obese as compared to lean, What you'll see is that with advancing gestation, because of the insulin sensitivity decreases that occur, factors like cholesterol and triglycerides increase with pregnancy. And what you can see is that what it increases more, in what group it increases in those women who are obese as compared to those women who are lean. So that your fasting triglycerides are dependent upon not only what stage in pregnancy you're at, but also what was your status before you got pregnant. And again, the same group... They measured their triglycerides, and they were significantly different here as well. How about free fatty acids? A lot of people are looking at free fatty acids, and the key when you're looking at free fatty acids in pregnancy, unfortunately, is that the fasting levels don't tell you too much. There's a decrease in free fatty acid concentrations with advancing gestation in those women who are both lean and obese. Where you start seeing the differences and where things come into play a little bit is that In these studies, these were done during a clamp. So insulin was infused, and when you infuse insulin, what you do is that you inhibit lipolysis. But because of the changes in insulin sensitivity with advancing pregnancy, there's less ability to inhibit lipolysis with advancing gestation at the same insulin concentration, meaning that I can give you the same insulin, but you know what? Your free fatty acids are going to be higher. And here you can see they're 25 or 30% higher in late pregnancy as compared to early and pre-gravid. So the point is is that in women who are obese, not only is there this change in insulin sensitivity related to glucose metabolism, but it also relates to lipid metabolism as well. And unfortunately, lipid metabolism in pregnancy isn't as simple as we see with glucose. It just doesn't cross the placenta, and so you get a concentration gradient. Because most of the uh, uh, lipids we see are triglycerides. This is a depiction of what the placenta looks like. This is the maternal surface, okay, looking at the distitial trophoblast, and this is the basal membrane looking into the fetal compartment. Maternal triglycerides can be broken down because of lipases on the decitial trophoblast. So the triglycerides get broken down into fatty acids. Fatty acids can traverse the placenta directly, and so you can have a transfer of free fatty acids from the mother to the fetus. The thing that makes it complicated is that you can also have re of free fatty acids in the placenta so that you have increased lipid in the placenta as well. And then what you do is that you have lipolysis of these uh, lipid components, these lipid moieties, which then cross the placenta. So you just can't measure a glucose and compare it to a glucose in the cord. When you're looking at free fatty acids, you can't compare free fatty acids in the maternal circulation with a fetal circulation because there's an intermediary metabolism going on both in the placenta and in the baby as well. So it's, it's much more complex. But there are simple ways of looking at it, and this was one of the first studies. This was done by Dicciani in Pisa, who published this over 10 years ago, saying that even in an Italian population, what you can see is that maternal triglycerides correlated very well with birth weight. And since that time, there have been probably three or four other studies. Who does Schaefer Graf? Uh, Published this in a German population, and what we've done is that we've looked at it in our population, and we find not only do maternal triglycerides correlate with neonatal fat mass, but what we can also see is that it doesn't really make any difference of when you measure them, whether you measure them before people get pregnant, in early pregnancy, or late pregnancy. The correlation is relatively the same. The The change in concentration is there, but again, that same principle holds. It's who you are before you get pregnant. The pregnancy has this effect on that we think is related to the growth in later pregnancy. So whether you're looking at triglycerides pre-pregnancy, early or late pregnancy, there is a correlation between these triglyceride levels and what we see in uh, the babies relative to fat mass. So in order to get from the mother to the baby, you've got to go through the placenta. And so what I want to talk about a little bit is placenta and placental gene expression. And... Uh, I think the placenta is really one of those unappreciated organs that occur, unless you're an obstetrician. Though NIH is really getting into it. There's going to be a symposium next week right after Memorial Day where NICHD is getting together a group of people to look at what can we do to spend more time looking at placenta, and does it hold the key? The reason why is that if you think about it, fetal, and I have a slide in this, but I decide not to show it. Most of fetal growth, two-thirds of fetal growth, occur over the last third of pregnancy. So between 28 weeks and term, babies grow two-thirds of their weight. They go from 1,000 grams to 3,300 grams, 3,400 grams. Before that, what's growing, besides obviously organogenesis? The placenta's growing. Placental growth stops at the end of the second, early third trimester, and that four to 500 gram placenta is what we is growing and developing and changing its gene expression over time. And that's why I want to spend a little bit of time going over. When you take a look at placenta and adipose tissue, they have a similar cytokine profile. And I'll show you this in a second. Is that What causes the insulin resistance in non-pregnant people as well as in pregnant people? There's a whole body of literature. And again, the person who's done most of this is a fellow by the name of Hoda Muschlegel who works in uh, Boston in Jeff Flyer's lab looking at these changes in cytokine expression related to post-insulin receptor signaling and causing insulin resistance. It's a fascinating story that I don't have time to go into, but he just does a wonderful talk in talking about the development of this, starting with fruit flies. The bottom line is that if you take a look at placenta and adipose tissue, they have a similar adipokine profile except for one thing, adiponectin. Adiponectin is one of the cytokines or adipokines that's associated with increased insulin sensitivity. And we find that it does not uh, increase in the placenta. It's not present in the placenta at all. But otherwise, we see no difference in maternal versus placental cytokine expression. What we do know is that when we take a look at the changes in insulin sensitivity over time in pregnancy, and these studies were published a while ago, and I'm sure there are different cytokines that contribute, the bottom line is is that if you go through some of the older textbooks in pregnancy and diabetes, they'll say that the insulin resistance in pregnancy is caused by human placental lactogen. The answer is that that's an old study by Ron Kalkoff published 50 years ago that he gave HPL to some woman after delivering the GTT wasn't quite as good as it was during pregnancy. These were CLAMP studies done looking at TNF-alpha, which has been associated with post-insulin receptor signaling, and we think the data is reasonably strong that the changes in insulin sensitivity are related to cytokines. If you think about it, and I'll show you the slides in a second, maternal obesity is associated with an inflammatory profile, which can then be associated with insulin resistance. Cytokines and adipocytokines in pregnancy are complex. The reason is, is that we have many different compartments, and this is the problem in pregnancy, it's not simple. You can get maternal adipokines in maternal fat tissue. You can get systemic cytokines in the circulation. You can get placental cytokines that can either stay in the placenta, go into the maternal side, or go into the fetal side. But uh, fetal cytokines, and I'll show you some, uh, I don't know if I have the data on this, but the fetus does make cytokines, but they don't cross the placenta. The very bottom line is is that what's made on the maternal side and on the fetal side doesn't cross to the other side, but what's made in the placenta can either stay in the placenta or primarily go to the maternal circulation. That's the reason why when the placenta delivers, you have an improvement in insulin sensitivity after the delivery. So here's some data that we did. These are longitudinal fat biopsies that we did in women who uh, were done before they got pregnant in early and late pregnancy. The principle of the slide is that whatever cytokine you're looking at—IL-6, TLR4, what have you—is that there's a low-grade inflammation in pregnancy. Pregnancy is an inflammatory state. So these are the cytokine expression levels in the same uh, adipose tissue depot in early pregnancy (12 to 14 weeks). If we went back in at 34 to 36 weeks. The we in this case is a plastic surgeon. And what he did was that we did liposuction, many liposuction biopsies, and looked at the expression. And what you can see, there's a two- to three-fold increased expression in normal women uh, relative to their cytokine expression in the adipose tissue. So that pregnancy is an inflammatory condition, and it's a meta-analysis that's probably related to the changes in insulin sensitivity. If you take a look at the placenta, these are arbitrary placentas in women with a BMI of 22, 30, and 46. And these are placentas obtained electively at the time of uh, cesarean delivery. It's a scheduled cesarean delivery. No labor, no ruptured membranes, people coming in who are going to have a repeat cesarean section. And the principle is, is that if you look in the placentas very carefully, what you can see is that there's evidence of inflammation, not infection, but inflammation. These women have no evidence of infection, but the higher the, the BMI of the mother, there's a higher inflammatory profile in the placenta of these women. And if you take a look at the gene expression, these markers, whether you look at it in adipose tissue, and what you can see over here is that these are fold changes are in the gray bars, and the yellow represents what we see in obese women, is that there's an increased cytokine gene expression using PCR in the adipose tissue, and if you take the same take a placenta from the same woman, what you can see is the same thing applies. So this increased expression of cytokine exists both in adipose tissue and in the placenta. And what I think is the most interesting thing is that the question is where did these inflammatory cytokines of macrophages come from? Are they maternal or are they fetal? So in this particular study, it was uh, what we did is we took a look, and this is the royal we. We took a look at placenta of women who were having male babies, and then we looked at the gene expression relative to gender or sex in the placenta, and what we see is that the macrophages that are in the placenta and these same kind of crown structures, which you see in white adipose tissue, exist in placenta, and where these, where these macrophages are, they're of maternal origin, not fetal origin. So if you think about macrophages, they invade different tissue spaces, and it makes sense that... They would invade the placental tissue, and this is part of the source of the cytokines that we're seeing clinically. And if you take a look at uh, the maternal systemic inflammation, and it's similar in the uh, cord blood. I don't know if I included it. I think I cut out the slide for time's sake. But the principle is here. These are obese women who are otherwise healthy, no GDM, lean women otherwise healthy, all having elective cesarean deliveries. No surprise, the insulin concentrations are about two-fold higher in the obese woman. Plasma glucose is a little bit higher. And what you see is that the leptin concentrations are higher. Most of the leptin we see in the maternal circulation in pregnancy is of placental origin, not maternal adipocyte origin. I don't have the time to go into it, but we've shown that uh, looking at these longitudinal biopsies. IL-6 in inflammatory uh, cytokine, is increased and CRP has increased, we didn't see TNF-alpha increased. But the principle is is that there's a meta-inflammation in an obese woman as compared to a non-obese woman in late pregnancy, and it's similar in their offspring. So how do you get those cytokines there? What's the principle behind it? This is a study that was done by Tatiana Radielli, who uh, was an Italian postdoc who spent two years with us looking at placenta of genes in women who were obese and had gestational diabetes in contrast to those women with type one diabetes. And we tend to think diabetes is diabetes, but if you look at the heat map, the heat map can be interpreted very simply that the orange color are those genes that are upregulated. The blue color represents those genes that are downregulated. And you can see there are differences between the type one and the type in the obese. And what we can see here is that if you look at glucose or glycogen turnover and issues related to glycosylation, that it's increased and those women with type 1 diabetes, the strongest orange color, tend to be here. In contrast, what you see when you start looking at those infants whose mothers were obese and have gestational diabetes, the gene expression is increased, in those genes related to lipid metabolism and lipid transport. So again, even though we look at these babies who tend to be overgrown, the nutrients that may account for their overgrowth may differ depending on if we're talking about type one diabetes or gestational diabetes, especially with gestational diabetes we see in obese women. Okay, coming back to the clinical point, keeping all of that in perspective, so how does this relate to long-term effects on the mother and the offspring? And this is where I'll get maybe controversial, we'll see. This is data from Dana DiBaglia looking at diabetes. It's a classic paper showing that siblings of mothers uh, who were born uh, after they developed diabetes had a higher risk of obesity in later life. So if your mother uh, had normal glucose tolerance in her first pregnancy but diabetes in her second pregnancy, what you can see is the black bars represent those women who were exposed to diabetes in utero and it's significantly increased, particularly up until uh, young adulthood. And once you get to be in the early 20s, there's less of a difference, but it's principally there. This is data from Hillier looking at uh, a population uh, looking at the childhood risk of obesity relative to glucose less than what you would see for diabetes or gestational diabetes in a population that I think came from Hawaii and Northern California. And what you can see is if you look at the glucose challenge test, those women who were in the high end of normal, the highest quartile, they had a higher risk, and here's the odds ratio, of having a child either birth weight above the 85th percentile or here above the 95th percentile of 1.2 to 1.3, thereabouts. So that a glucose challenge test above those levels was associated with childhood obesity at age five and seven. Similarly, if you go back down to those women who had not only a glucose challenge test but went on to have a glucose tolerance test, what you can see if the glucose challenge test was abnormal but there was only one abnormal value on the GTT, so technically not consistent with diabetes, the odds ratio increased. And again, if they had a positive glucose challenge test and they had a diagnosis of gestational diabetes, they increased their risk to 1.9 approximately. The point I want to make is that in both the previous slide by Debelia and the slide by Hillier, these data were adjusted for maternal age, parity, weight gain during pregnancy, ethnicity, and you can read the rest as well. To the best of my knowledge, when I looked at this data, I didn't see that any of these data were corrected for maternal pre-pregnancy obesity. That's what I think. That's how we interpret it. Here's some other data. This is from Europe. This is kind of looking at it in a little different way. These are women who are overweight. The prevalence of overweight in offspring of women with gestational diabetes, but in relationship to the maternal BMI in early pregnancy. So at age 2, the risk of having a overweight offspring was significantly higher if your mother had a BMI of 30 when she was pregnant as compared to if she was, uh, had a, she was overweight or lean. And this is at 2 years. At 8 years... Your risk of having a child that's overweight is close to 40% if your mother was obese before she got pregnant with gestational diabetes, 20% here, and close to 5% here. Finally, when you're looking at kids who are 11 years old, the risk of having an overweight child was uh, still significant, and when you do the analysis of variance, was 45% if your mother was obese, and it was 15% if she was overweight, and it was probably 10%. So again, not that gestational diabetes is a benign condition, but when you put it on the background of maternal pre-pregnancy obesity, not gestational weight gain, you get a slide that looks like this. And here's the changes in insulin sensitivity. This is the offspring of the normal glucose-tolerant woman, the offspring of the type 1 diabetes woman, and the offspring of the woman with gestational diabetes. And what you can see is that the woman with gestational diabetes, looking at the HOMA-IR at age 11 in the offspring of the GDM compared with the type 1, it's higher. So I've got to admit, this data with type 1 diabetes is data out of Denmark by Klassen et al. that show that the infants of women with type 1 diabetes exposed to hyperglycemia tend to have a picture that looks more like what we would consider with GDM. But in this study, this is what they found. This is a study that probably most people here are familiar with, looking at the prevalence of the metabolic syndrome at age 11 in offspring of diabetic women, and so this was a part of Rena Wing study done in Providence. If you were born LGA and your mother had gestational diabetes, your risk of having the metabolic syndrome or a minor variation thereof was close to 50%. If you were born appropriate for gestational age and your mother had gestational diabetes, it was only around 20%. Keep in mind at that time in Providence, the risk of developing gestational diabetes was 5% approximately. Let's go to the woman with normal glucose tolerance. If you were born LGA and your mother had normal glucose tolerance, the risk was 30%. So if you do the attributable risk, given at that time in Providence, what's the risk of being overweight or uh, or obese? Probably 30%. And what you can see is that you're much worse off if you were born large, even though your mother had. Then, if your mother had gestational diabetes, you were born appropriate size. Obviously, the best situation if you're born appropriate for weight and your mother had normal glucose tolerance, kind of the reference group for everyone. But this is the first table in this, and she looked at the hazard ratio for the development of the metabolic syndrome. And again, the biggest risk is being born large for gestational age versus appropriate for gestational age. But if you look at maternal pre-pregnancy obesity, and in this study they defined it as a BMI greater than 27, What you can see here's the hazard ratio, And here's the p-value, and it's still significant. Granted, it's a wide confidence interval. The point is, is that if you had gestational diabetes or normal glucose tolerance, it dropped out. It wasn't significant anymore, cross zero, cross one. So the point is, even in this study that everyone points to, when you adjust for maternal obesity, the risk of gestational diabetes drops away. This is our data, small numbers. These are women who we studied... Uh, at birth, during their pregnancy, and follow them up um, at age 8, the kids. And what we did is that uh, we took the 62. We have BMI data on probably a little more than this, 100 and some odd. But because we wanted to look at uh, body fat as our outcome measure, we ended up using DEXA. So we have three tertiles, tertile 1, 2, and 3. Percent body fat is 20% here, 28% here, and 40% here. These are the great unwashed kids running around Cleveland at any one time. What you can see is if you go back and take a look at the mothers when they were pregnant, which is what I'm interested in as an obstetrician, what you can see is that maternal pregravid weight or BMI was the strongest risk factor for having kids in this third tertile, and obviously it's significant. Again, if you take a look at the weight gain in pregnancy, it was significantly less in the women who had the larger BMI, and we know that. That's, that's, that's a, you know epidemiological factor, and the small studies keep on showing it. And we also found is that half of the women had gestational diabetes and half of them had normal glucose tolerance. It didn't make any difference relative to the outcome. Looking at the kids, in this third tertile, they are different. So here's their percent body fats. Again, no surprise. Their waist circumference was higher. Their systolic blood pressure was significantly higher. Their insulin resistance was twice as high. Their triglycerides were twice as high. And their leptins were four to five times as high otherwise healthy kids. And what we see is that if we looked at their percent body fat at birth and correlated with their percent body fat at age 8, we had an R value of 0.3. So your percent body fat will be there. And so when we did the stepwise regression, if your mother had a pre-gravid BMI greater than 30, your odds ratio being in that upper tertile was 545 significant with a wide confidence interval. If you adjust for gender and the presence of gestational diabetes, it increases the odds ratio to 7.75, again, wide confidence interval. So what we came up with is that maternal obesity counts for about 18% of the variance in childhood obesity, but significantly, even though I spent my whole life treating women with gestational diabetes, treated gestational diabetes appears to be less of a risk factor for childhood obesity as compared to maternal pre obesity. This was a meta-analysis by Phillips in Diabetologia, published a few years ago, looking at maternal diabetes and the risk of the offspring BMI-Z score. And the issue is is that if your mother had diabetes, you have a higher risk of developing obesity in later life. What Phillips did is that he adjusted for pre and it's true. This is the odds ratio down here. It just reaches significance. So the BMI is increased in the offspring of the woman who had diabetes during pregnancy. But... When he adjusted for maternal pre-gravid BMI, it was no longer significant. This is Matt Gilman's data looking at the follow-up of the A-Choice trial. This is the trial done by Carolyn Crowther in Australia, looking at the effect of treatment of gestational diabetes on outcomes. And in the original trial, showed that treatment of gestational diabetes improves perinatal outcome, including growth of the babies. But when Matt did the follow-up study, and again, it wasn't the ideal study, Matt would admit this, he found no difference in the growth of the kids at age four to five based on school physicals. There was an abstract presented this year at the Maternal Fetal Medicine Meeting by Landon et al., and we were part of the study. We looked at the U.S. population of mothers who were treated for gestational diabetes in pregnancy, and what we found is that treatment of mild gestational diabetes during pregnancy, improved outcomes, including adiposity of the babies at birth. Now the kids are 8 years old. We didn't see any difference. Okay? The only group that had some difference were females who were at the very top quintile. They did show some relationship. Otherwise, they didn't. So this is the point I want to make. This is the last few slides. And I, I talked to Eric about this. We looked at what we did is we did a study where we were looking at people before they get pregnant and during pregnancy. Well, not everybody gets pregnant, even though we encourage them, give them bottles of wine, <laughs> whatever it takes. And uh, sometimes they don't get pregnant. So these were so what we did is we repeated the studies one year later, and this is the body composition studies who were going to be enrolled in our longitudinal study. And what we sh- showed in this is that from one year from one year to another. These women who were part of this long term study had kept their weight the same, kept their lean body mass the same, their fat mass was the same, and their body fat was the same. So a nice healthy group just to show over a year you can if you maintain your body composition that's wonderful, but it also related to the change in their clamp insulin sensitivity and their insulin response. matter of fact, their insulin response was a little bit better here. so the question comes up is that what happens when a woman has a baby? does having a baby have a long-term effect on maternal metabolism. Who says yes? Who says no? Who says I don't know? All right. <laughs> That's why you do the study. So here, the, here it is again. This time we have three time points. Pre-gravid, late pregnancy, meaning 34 to 36 weeks, maximal insulin changes in metabolism, and finally one year postpartum all of these women breastfed and they stopped breastfeeding they were all done during the follicular phase of the cycle not on hormonal contraception etc 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 what you can see is that and again what I have really outlined here is the changes from pre-pregnancy to one year postpartum there was no significant differences in their body composition their weight their lean body mass, their fat mass or their uh, percent body fat what you can see is that Yes, during pregnancy, you can have a significant decrease in your insulin sensitivity. No surprise. We've shown this a couple of times. But when you measure them a year later, there was no significant difference in the clamp insulin sensitivity. There was no difference. They have an increase in insulin response, but no change in beta cell function a year later, whether you're looking at first phase or second phase. So the, at least the way that we and I have, we have other data relating to indirect calorimetry, et cetera. The bottom line is, if you get back to your pre-pregnancy weight, at least by looking at clamp data, beta cell function with an IVGTT, you're no different than where you were before you began. And we have other data that we've published in JCE&M showing that if you don't, you're not the same person. So you're both right. It depends on if you get back to your pre-pregnancy weight. So here's our last slide. So in utero, programming of obesity and metabolic dysfunction, it really depends on your pre-pregnancy status, whether you're obese, you have gestational diabetes, and we think it's mediated through metabolic inflammation. This leads to fetal and neonatal metabolic programming of obesity, pre-metabolic syndrome in the kids, which we showed in the same thing in uh, the paper by Rena Wing's group, but again leads back down to the adult metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes and that factor of metabolic aging, which we all are dealing with day to day. And so these are the people who really do all the work. Uh, I'm very lucky. Uh, Dr. Gueldu Muzan does all of the molecular work. Uh, We had a nice young woman who joined our group from uh, Oregon who's doing some nice data periotyony on uh, placental lipid metabolism, our recruiters, postdocs, and so forth. So I'll stop there and say thank you. Whoa, okay questions i don't think there's any the question is just to repeat it if you didn 't hear it is that does gestational age of the baby make a difference relative to long term outcomes i don 't know the answer to that. I would think it does because obviously the earlier gestational age you deliver, and i 'm not saying premature, obviously, but uh, you know there is a difference in your body fat at age uh, thirty eight weeks gestation versus forty weeks gestation, so clinically. Uh, once a woman is at term and near term, we don't let people much get past 39 weeks. So I think it's potentially helpful, but there's no data; it's pure speculation. Because with advancing gestation, there's an increase in fat. You gain 200 grams of birth weight over every week in gestation, uh, particularly if your mother's overweight or obese, fetal weight. Kimber Stanhope from UC Davis. And I was under the impression that the risk of developing gestational diabetes increased
1: with each pregnancy. Is that true, even if a woman goes back to her? original weight after each pregnancy no
0: one's looked at it in that particular way again i speculate yes there's been a couple of studies to show that if you have gestational diabetes in one pregnancy you're more likely to develop it in the next but it's not 100 percent probably 25 30 percent by the different studies i don't think they ever went back and looked at pre-gravid weight as a variable that you could do but i would based on this data again we're looking at 10 20 women but i would think that the answer might be yes speculation. Rob Lustig. Um, two questions. First, uh, I was interested in the triglyceride data, since you said that it was free fatty acids. Um, the triglycerides are not free fatty acids, but the triglycerides in the mother are a very good indicator of insulin resistance. So is it the triglycerides, or is it the insulin resistance? We think that it is the triglycerides. They increase, and at least that that's the correlation between that and fetal growth. The issue related to the insulin resistance are probably related more to the free fatty acids. I would agree with you. Uh, Tom Buchanan has done that down in uh, USC. So again, uh, especially because the triglycerides are easier to measure, and you can see that correlation, the free fatty acids, it depends on when you're measuring them. What we saw the difference if you were lean or obese was during a clamp, and so it's only when you're trying to suppress them you see the lack of suppression, and that may be related to the insulin resistance. And again, we think it's a post-receptor phenomena. Second question: In any of your studies, did you look at macronutrient composition of the mother's diet during the pregnancy to determine whether that was the factor
1: or whether it was the weight gain itself?
0: We have some of that data. We haven't spent a lot of time. Matter of fact, we gave it to Barbara to look at years ago, and she's going to. (laughs) There, I got you. But it's a good. We haven't. I can tell you in a, in a short answer. We've looked at fish oil as an anti-inflammatory, and I can tell you that while it looks like it has some effect on tissue levels in cytokine expression, it has no effect on physiological factors such as insulin resistance or fetal growth. But we can see differences in white adipose tissue and placenta. So that's one micronutrient. Okay.